Good evening and welcome to Rare Book School 1998 Summer Session, Week 3. Our speaker tonight is no stranger to these shores. Don Cromwell has been teaching in Rare Book School for many years and has been uh, known to give a Book Arts Press lecture or two in his time as well. It's a great pleasure to welcome him here. The title of his speech, Praise the Lord, We Are a Musical Nation, the Bay Book of 1698. D.W. Crummel. Thanks, Terry. We do need to celebrate. In 1698, just 300 years ago, Bartholomew Green and John Allen in Boston printed a ninth edition of the Bay Songbook. Included in it was the first musical notation printed in the British colonies. Music had been printed as early as the 1540s in Mexican service books, just as the Council of Trent was getting underway, and nearly a century before 1640, the date of the famous first Bay Songbook. The music printing in Mexico died out after a few years, but the 1698 Bay Songbook was to begin a lineage that continues today and justifies our having a party. The printing of the history of, of this book, however, is a mess. Editions after 1650 with the revisions by Henry Dunster and Richard Lyon are often called not the Bay, but the New England Songbook. Some of the 17th century editions were printed in England. We're not sure exactly which ones. Several dozen later ones came out in both countries, also in Scotland as late as the 1650s, and naturally the numbering schemes are different. The best citations are in the Holmes book on called the Minor Mathers, also for the Boston editions in the Britain Lowens Crawford American Secular Music Imprints. The locations in all of these, however, are faulty, but they can sometimes be corrected and updated by the online databases of ESTC and the counterpart NAIP, the North American Imprints Project, except that neither database records all the copies, and finding them can be difficult since some of them are cataloged according to U.S. mark and some according to U.K. mark. Alan DeGutis tells me this is all getting straighted out now, and I hope so. Of the first eight editions, none of them have any music. Whose idea was it to print musical notation? My candidate is Increase Mather, who is living in London between 1688 and 1691, a spokesman for the colonists. Here he would have heard all about the Playfords. To us, their name means spicy song texts. Then it meant music of all kinds promoted through the printing press. Early scholars have naturally looked to Playford for the musical sources. They're probably looking in the wrong place since Playford was militantly Anglican. Nicholas Temperley's new hymn tune index suggests a better source, a little known psalm book by a man named John Patrick. Like Mather, he was himself a dissenter. We still wonder, what was the printed music meant to accomplish? Musical notation was not common in early America. It could be seen in a few imported books, but manuscript copy, locally generated, was rarely found. Who in the colonies ever could read music? Certainly no congregation shivering in January in a poorly lit sanctuary. More likely, the book was meant as authority and aid memoir for respected leaders of the flock who could read tonic so far and with lusty voices sing to the greater glory of God, if not necessarily to the musical delight of the rest of the church. Samuel Sewell may fill the bill. 
After the first verse, others in the congregation may have remembered enough to join in. We today may find the Lord's ways beyond all understanding, but in mysterious ways God, through his deputies, clearly did bless this information transfer process. But let's leave theology and return to bibliography. Some landmarks of printing are breathtaking. History is being made, the point is obvious. The Gutenberg Bibles come to mind. The ninth Basom book falls at the other end of the spectrum. Like its predecessors and successors, it's fat and fragile. In 12s, signed A to S, with 440 pages. Is it a 12-mo printed from unusually small sheets, or a half-sheet 24-mo in 12s on unusually large sheets? Terry thinks the former is more likely, and I'll be damned if I ever want to argue with him. To find out, one would need to tear apart the books. Uh, curators ought to murder anyone who tried, of course, and on a jury, I'd vote to acquit. Surviving copies now also have a six-leaf appendix. Uh, it's mentioned by Cotton Mather in a note of March 2, 1699. Quote, there is printing a New England, a new edition of the Psalm book. In every former edition, the 26th chapter of Isaiah was in such a meter that few of them could sing. Whereupon I, this day, took a few minutes to turn it into another meter with perhaps a smoother and sweeter version. So it is published in the psalm book. Now, should one believe the imprint date of 1698 as specified, or Mather's implication that the book was not available till the next year, I'll argue for 1698. I want to give the talk this year rather than next year. Uh, furthermore, the extra gathering is signed A suggesting that it wasn't part of the original work. The music now for 13 tunes was printed from 63 wood blocks, each about three-eighths of an inch high and just over two inches long, one for the treble and one for the bass. Now, how do you get 63? Don't ask me. Um, th these are spread out over 11 pages at the end of the final gathering, usually six staves to a page, but sometimes five and one times seven. This means that the treble and bass for some tunes end up on different pages. So the imposition obviously then was done by a musical illiterate using makeshift furniture perhaps. Sight reading was probably never intended. After all, the words were still on different pages. Psalmization syllables, the letters M, F, S, and L for me, fa, so, la, okay below the music were set in movable type. Some of you may like a good bibliographical puzzle. Try this one. How many sorts of the lowercase letters M, F, S, and L were in the printer's font? Was he in danger of running out of any letters? Remember that the type could have been distributed after the outer form was printed and reset in the inner form so that the book, uh, and remember also that this book is either a regular 12-mo or a 24-mo in 12s, but does that make a difference? If you like puzzles, have fun. All told, analytical bibliographers may find it exciting to describe the book's production, but when they look at the book, they may cry just the same. Nor do we know all that much about the distribution. It was available from Michael Perry under the west end of the townhouse in Boston 
a small press run of several hundred copies. This seems like a fair guess. This is far fewer than the 1700 proposed for the 1640-bay songbook. A smaller run in 1698 is supported by the fact that at least 10 more Boston editions over a peer, appeared over the next 20 years. Some of them have variant imprints even. The economics of publishing, capital, availability of materials, demand for copies, likely called for smaller and more frequent editions of the book. The ninth edition is far less famous than the first, but it's also much scarcer. Two copies survive, both with evidence of their early owners. One, happily, is right here in Charlottesville. It's signed by William Davis in 1712. The other copy is at the Mass Historical Society in Boston, signed by Benjamin Dalbeer, dated 1725. The one here lacks some pages, uh, but neither one of them is ideal copy, since John Cook Wiley, long ago, seems to have been the first to notice that there is included here a, a leaf with three staves of music that's not in Boston. So we've got a unique document here. Question. Will, digitiz will digitizal preservation be aware of this? Next question. This book has been microfilmed, microcarded, microfiched, facsimiled several times already. And has anyone ever noticed or cared? Last question. Why do we get so excited about preservation at all when nobody knows anything about descriptive bibliography? Okay, end of this first sermon. Uh, the early inventories of the Mather family collections don't mention this book. The Mathers probably owned it, but saw it as a working tool, not part of their library. Meanwhile, there's this recent American sacred music imprints, much to be respected. It does not mention the Charlottesville copy, but instead it says there's one at the British Museum, and I'm at a loss to know why. My friends at the British Library can't find it. Well, their collections may be Wonderland, but the Mad Hatters and Red Queens are the ones who made their cataloging rules. I'm much in awe of the ability of anybody there to find anything, but there could be a copy hiding there. Furthermore, I recall the late Irving Lowens, who did the American Sacred Music imprints, or parts of it. About 40 years ago, we were both living in Washington. He mentioned an English copy. As a bibliographer, he was extremely fastidious, but in this case, I think he was probably wrong, although I can't prove it. He was also a good book scout, which means he was, besides being a bibliographer, he was also very optimistic. And it was also he who told me about the Charlottesville copy, even. He talked me into coming down to look at it. The NUC now reports a microfilm of the British Museum copy. The New York Public Library owns the microfilm, and what does it show but the signature from the Mass Historical Society? Now, could there be two copies signed by Benjamin Dalbeer? Uh, or could a cataloger have made a simple mistake? Uh, remember, this was in the 1940s when catalogers didn't make mistakes. Um, even bibliographers have to take their chances, though, on this one. Now, the 1698 Bay Psalm book is a landmark in American music printing. So let's ask, how over the years has music in general, and how has this book in particular fit into our country's music shelves? Lawrence Roth's An American Bookshelf, 1755, is a nice model. 
So let's quickly look at the seven intervening 50-year dates to see how our musical nation is reflected in its music printing. We thus leave now the ancient kingdom of analytical bibliography, and we enter the banana republic called historical bibliography. So watch your purses and billfolds. 1748. The bass song book was still being reissued. The music blocks for the ninth edition were used again in the 10th of 1702, but the type was reset. The only known copy of the 10th, incidentally, is here at Charlottesville too. An 11th edition does not survive. Soon the music was being cut onto better wood plates and eventually onto copper plates uh, and printed in Taoyo. Later editions have words under the uh, notes and give the melody only. Uh, they also tell us of growing fears that the Lord would be angry with bad music. The depth of divine anger or the badness of the music, this is hard for us to know. In any event, happily, the sad state of church music would improve only in our own day thanks to the arrival of heavy metal gospel and Sunday morning karaoke. Uh, the Bay Psalm Book's editorial lineage ends with none other than Thomas Prince, the historian and collector of Bay Psalm Books. Music did not greatly concern him. He had a sinful number of copies of the first edition, but he may never have owned the ninth and seems never have cared about it. His own edition, the 27th of 1758, was the last important one, and it has no music at all. If you wanted music, you could buy a special supplement to bind in at the end of the book. Secular music at this time, still uncommon in church-minded New England, was more commonly seen elsewhere in the colonies. The will of a man named Cuthbert Ogle of York County, Virginia, around Williamsburg, dated 1755, mentions music of Handel and his contemporaries, probably in London editions, but none of it's around. Now, Roth's model of the, in the American bookshelf goes only so far. With music, we really need to distinguish two music shelves, one for what was published and sold, another one for what was acquired in hope that it would be performed and remembered. The acts of printing and publishing say, here's music that you need, you need to buy a copy. The acts of acquiring and saving imply, here's music I feel strongly about, I want a copy. Thus begins the classic separation, publishers looking for buyers, owners who presumably want it. Publishers guided by what they think will sell, contrast with collectors, guided by a love for what they come to like. The split, music is commerce versus music is art, may be hard to buy, but it's really not hard to understand. A bass song book, like most music books, may turn up on either the home music shelf, testimony that publishers, mostly American, were at work, or a collector's music shelf, testifying to a fascination with composers, uh, mostly, either Europe, mostly either European or somehow influenced by European music. So is the bass song book, is the music American or European? Analytical bibliographers give thanks for being analytical bibliographers so that they don't have to answer questions like that. Historical bibliographers, watch your billfolds. 1798. Religious music was by now finding a distinctive voice in the new nation. Calvinism was waning, so that the repertory was no longer tied to the Psalms. Other music was possible. 
American church music may have sounded much like English church music, but a lot of it was now written by Native American composers. Was it good or bad music? Who cares? It's we who sing the praises of the Lord and the Lord who listens and gives us our daily bread. So, as a result of this, we get what you would call, you want some music, you got some music. music. The music of Daniel Bailey, Supply Belcher, William Billings, Andrew Law, and other tunesmiths of the first New England school. Printed from movable type, mostly from the Caslin Foundry in London, and imported, as imported, these fonts were imported by William McCullough in Philadelphia and Isaiah Thomas in Worcester. Sheet music was also beginning to be engraved and published for those with money whose tastes were important, mostly in cities with theaters and mostly pirated from London editions. Uh, note our verb forms, how they have changed over the 18th century. In 1698, Patrick's psalms were copied. The show tunes of 1798 were pirated. Music, in other words, is now becoming a commodity, a property. A few years earlier than this, around 1795, Benjamin Dalbeer's copy of the Bay Psalm book had been presented to the Massachusetts Historical Society by John Dalbeer, likely Benjamin's descendant. There it would rest for nearly, uh, for quite a while for later historians to discover. In other collections, music was meant to be used. Reading from parts he had bought in Paris in 1783, Thomas Jefferson was performing as an amateur in the spirit of his neighbor who had died about the time he was being born. Cuthbert Ogle's library is lost, but Jefferson survives across the street in the Alderman Library, bound in a style typical of the day with green-bound, uh, green-dyed parchment covers and red foredges. Jefferson apparently never owned a 1698 Bay Psalm book, probably never wanted to. What would he have done with it if he had owned it? In any event, let's move on to 1848. Sheet music publishing was now flourishing. The 1831 Copyright Act had now mentioned music, and publishers were trying to figure out what they could do with it. It did not mean for them what it does now, performance royalties. It did tell the merchants that they needed good music. They were lucky and soon found Stephen Foster. With other music books, the era was also auspicious. Lowell Mason was cleaning up on church, school, and choral music, printed in quantity from movable type or stereo. America's musical fates were thus coming to be tied to the printed page. Depression in the 1850s, then the devastation of the Civil War, later protracted financial and social instability, none of these could halt the progress of America's musical printing establishment. We know that music was being collected in 1848. This same Lowell Mason, traveling in Germany, had acquired the collection of a man named Johann Rink, rich in theory books, out of which the German art music tradition had arisen. Thomas's Bay, Thomas Prince's Bay Psalm books were soon to figure in the founding of the Boston Public Library, but in the first edition of 1640. As for the ninth edition, a man named George Hood, writing a history of music in New England, had seen it. Other than that, he was sleeping rather peacefully at the Mass Historical Society. 1898. The frontier was disappearing. At home, music was all the more important. 
a point was well known to entrepreneurs with large visions as they collectively, they quote, grew the musical economy of the nation. In 1900, the market for printed music was glutted. As the mind is saturated, the will becomes obscure. obscure uh, pardon me. As the mind is saturated, the will becomes unsure. Nostalgia creates energy and not commitment. The piano bench was crammed, but regularly updated. Owners no longer cared about owning music so less of it survives. Those in 1850 who bought it usually cherished it. It was expensive to begin with, and binding it made it even costlier. So they became collectors of a sort. It was the newly invented phonograph in 1898, however, that was soon to conquer the world of music. Nickelodeons were the technological marvel of the day, among the children that would soon be eaten by the media revolution that they helped to create. Music thus became less of a singing of the Lord's praise and more one of hearing them sung. Musical life was also by now far richer. Libraries were collecting music even if its popularity worried them. They knew the evils of dime novels and perhaps instinctively they knew what was to come of music, Tin Pan Alley, then jazz and rock, Muzak, the charts, the boom box. In 1698, was clearly, music was clearly on the Lord's side. By 1898, had Satan co-opted it? By this time, however, the 1640 Baysong book was a bibliographical holy grail to collectors. The 1698 edition was still little known. Music was to perform and hear, not to collect. Collecting was for history, literature, and art. The ninth edition was soon to emerge. In 1886, Sabin's Dictionary had gotten up to the letter P and had cited the Boston copy and had noticed that, quote, the tunes are cut in wood. Evans said so too when in 1903 he got as far as 1698. 1948. Fifty years ago, LP records were first appearing. Stereo, eight-track, quadraphonic, reel-to-reel, cassette, CDs were yet to be born. Revolutions, in other words, continue to devour their children. Mediums now are beginning to eat their messages. Upscale music publishing was flourishing thanks to the LP and the GI Bill, even if the firms rarely made it to Wall Street. Uh, most other publishers didn't either. If the 1698 by Sambuk had a moral, could it be that small is beautiful? Upscale music collecting was also flourishing in 1948, thanks to the Holocaust expatriates who brought with them masterpieces of European music. Much as the Bay Sambuk was itself a New World survivor of European warfare, so musical treasures of a war-ravaged continent were ending up in American universities and libraries. American printed music was also slowly catching the eyes of the enterprising counterparts to the great London antiquaries of 1698. The successors to Samuel Pepys, John Bagford, and Narcissus Luttrell are named Harry Dichter, J. Francis Driscoll, and Lester Levy. The extant Baysom books were now all in the institutional libraries. For instance, a second copy of the ninth edition had turned up, thanks to the Hollingworths, a family of Boston book scouts and bibliophiles. Be interesting to know more about them. In 1922, P.K. Foley 
had acquired this copy and sold it to a man named William Gwynne Mather, who is a Cleveland industrialist and a descendant of Increase in Cotton Mather. The price tag in 1922, incidentally, was $275. What do you make of that? Okay, anyway. Now, Mather's Lake Superior Iron Mines, working out of Cleveland, enabled him to hire the Rofont Club bookbinder named Thomas John Holmes as his personal librarian, and not only have him build the collection, but also do the three great Mather bibliographies. Uh, Mather, however, was hit by the Depression and forced to sell his collection, including two copies of the 10th edition, the sole surviving copy of the 12th, and lots more. Holmes' memoir discusses the collection and its sale to Tracy McGregor, who, if you hadn't noticed, is well known across the street. Someday, Terry, I hope, will have a lecture here on McGregor's plan for the encouragement of book collecting in American college libraries. A Detroit businessman then living in suburban Maryland, uh, McGregor wanted his books to enrich a good Southern university. Guess what he found? One praise, one praise for the likes of Mather and McGregor again. 1998. Tempting pronouncements are always tempting, so let's avoid them. The trends seem to be continuing. Revolutionary children are always hungry children, but happy children after they've eaten. Thus, the media change every few years. Old publishers end up in new electronic black holes, and we worry about paper-based collections lasting, and digital ones too now. Music collectors are still about, and if they're keeping quiet about it, one can see why. If a third copy of the Bay Songbook should go up at auction today, what would it fetch? Likely more than any music printed in America today, except maybe for the first edition of the Star Spangled Banner. The streeter copy of this one fetched 23000 at Park Burnett in 1967. What other titles might come close? Tufts or Walter's Psalm books of the 1720s? Or William Billings' 1770 New England Psalm Singer with a Paul Revere title page? <coughs> or Francis Hopkinson's Seven Songs, uh, a signer of the, uh, the Declaration who also wrote music? Maybe Ma uh, Matthew Hawkins' landmark of, of minstrelsy lithographed called Mesa Georgie Washington and General Lafayette for the return visit in 1826. Maybe Stephen Foster's very first song called Open Thy Lattice Love. Maybe the first, first edition, very scarce, of Alexander's Ragtime Band. Or maybe some of Charles Ives' privately printed songs or now-forgotten works still to be discovered. Why has printed music never been very pricey? Remember that condition is everything, and performers usually wear out their music in order to prove that it's worth listening to. Looking backward today, it's hard to know whether our book has been a story then of paradise loss or paradise regain. It can still comment on its 300-year history. For instance, one reason the music in the book is hard to explain involves a change in our notion of music itself. The Mathers Platonic ideal saw music as a statement meant to be pleasing to God. We today see music in more Aristotelian terms as a thing 
to be analyzed as a physical event, as a commercial commodity, even as a bibliographical object. We have music much more beautiful than anything the Mathers ever heard, along with lots more noise, but also new needs in our conscience then and in our society at large to live with this musical abundance. So it's time to recall the title of this lecture. Some of you will recognize the source, and I hope you've chuckled. Our setting is a little Welsh fishing village called Brrrr. I think I've got that pronunciation pretty good. It's in under Milkwood. Here, the Reverend Eli Jenkins, clueless, quote, hurries on through the town to visit the sick with jelly and poems. He hears the lovely Polly Garter singing a beautiful lullaby which speaks of the baby's father. Oh, Tom, Dick, and Harry were three fine men, and I'll never see such loving again. But little Willie, little Willie Wee, who is drowned at sea, little Willie Weasel is the man for me. And on hearing this music, the good Reverend Eli Jenkins is inspired to exalt and proclaim, Praise the Lord, we are a musical nation. For 300 years now, praise the Lord, the progeny of the Bay Psalm book have been proving that we are a musical nation by changing its music in ways that nobody in 1698 could ever have imagined. Did the Mathers really think that music would make for a more godly nation? One might propose that they rather goofed by getting the wrong beatitude. Instead of music that was poor in spirit, they tried for the meek. And thus, instead of getting the kingdom of Hemden, they ended up inheriting the earth. Possibility. Can today's media gurus really be less clueless in, predict, clueless in predicting the future of music, books, society, libraries? With this point now, the congregational singing has led into the sermon, and it's called the poverty of historicism, maybe. In other words, it's time to sing amen. Uh, let me encourage you to pay respects to the Virginia copy of this book, which for the next few days will be on display in the Statinius Gallery in special collections on the second floor of Alderman Library. And in fact, let me also remark that there is a copy here, that you can, the copy is here, and you can look at it very briefly this evening. Uh, the exhibit over there has other books, and there will be more of a chance to really look at the musical notation and maybe try to figure out what it means. Thanks very much. Diane Walker is curating the 1698 Bay Psalm book. That away. After you have uh, done your homage, perhaps you would like to join the speaker for a drink in the first floor staff lounge in the Alderman Library. See you tomorrow.